Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, our topic is Luther and the Jews, a point of extreme neuralgic pain and pressure for us as Lutherans, but a figure of what all Christians have to reckon with, um, not only after the specific horrors of the Holocaust, but after 2,000 years of very bad relationships between Jews and Christians. And we're going to do that with the help of Romans 9 through 11, following up on our last episode on Romans, because both, in a sense, the problem and the solution are found in those three chapters of Romans but often it seems Christians have gotten stuck at the problem and not gone on to Paul's solution. So to get us started, Dad, I thought it would be useful to just define a few terms that we're going to be using in this episode because they're often conflated or misunderstood. So first, um, I think we need to distinguish between anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism. I think you teach this a lot, so why don't you give us your way of defining the difference between those two? Yes, I think, you know, for Christians, this is a rather easy distinction to make. Uh, One can say, well, I have nothing against Jews personally or ethnically. I just don't agree with the religion of Judaism. So if that makes me anti-Judaic, fine, but I'm not anti-Semitic. I mean, that you can imagine a Christian thinking that way very easily. Right. And anti-Semitic then specifically means against the race or ethnicity of Jews. Right. Semite is a word that was popularized in the 19th century precisely to distinguish Judaism as a race over against uh, thinking of Jews as a religion, which had been the previous tradition. So anti-Semitism, especially the virulent forms of anti-Semitism in the 20th century, regularly boasted we have overcome merely religious anti-Judaism. We have now scientific race science Uh, anti-Semitism in its place. So I think for people in the Christian tradition to make a distinction here is comes easily. So we can say, and I think with some justice, that up until the 19th century, Christians uh, were hostile to Judaism as a religion. That is to say, they thought that it was inferior to and uh, stubbornly opposing the manifest truth of Christianity. So that might be a kind of religious pride. We can talk about that later on. But nevertheless, it's an intelligible distinction. Uh, The problem is, from a Jewish perspective, the distinction doesn't work. Because for a Jew, being a Jew is both belonging to a people and belonging to a religious tradition, even whether or not one today is a believer in that uh, religion. Uh, Nevertheless, being a Jew is belonging to a people. And so to to distinguish in a facile way, as it seems to Jews, between Judaism as religion and Judaism as people is to miss the fact that in Jewish eyes, they are one and the same thing. Right. So it's quite easy to be a Jew who is an atheist or a Marxist or a Buddhist and is nevertheless claims the identity of, of Jew and engages in Jewish practices, even specific in the community. Obviously, if you're a Buddhist or a Marxist, you are not going to be keeping the law the way the Lubavitchers do, for example. Right, right, right. But but that to what seems to Christians seems to be an utterly impossible combination actually makes perfect sense from within the Jewish community. Right. And that's that's in the in the in the respective rights of incorporation into the community. The child born of a Jewish mother is circumcised in the flesh. 
and that designates one as a member of the covenant who is undertaking the yoke of the covenant. But in Christianity, uh, any person of any race can submit to baptism or be submitted to baptism. It does not depend in any respect on birth or birth order or ethnicity. So this is a fundamental distinction between the uh, rites of origin in the two religions. And we should just put up the caution there that that difference has also often been used to demonstrate, apparently, the superiority of Christianity over Judaism. And Judaism has been dismissed as being tribal or or ethnocentric in some way. Yeah, and that these are these become very very problematic and difficult debates, which I think we'll, we might get into later on. So we will continue to talk about anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism as logically helpful, but it's important for listeners to realize that in actual reality, those don't the sharp distinctions don't obtain so so neatly. Um, and then the other term that we need to define is supersessionism. You know, I, I used this illustration of the the idea how the um, certain high-ranking Nazis uh, in the Third Reich said to the German Christians, "Well, yes, you superseded the Jews, and we Nazis are now superseding you Christians." Right, so supersessionism is a kind of a game of one-upmanship, right? It's a game anybody can play. You are passe. The the uh, leading edge of history has passed you by. You are left behind in the dustbin. We represent represent the forward march of progress. We have superseded you. So you can create a ridiculous narrative. The Jews superseded the polytheists. The, the monotheists of Judaism were superseded by the Trinitarians of early Catholicism. Early Catholicism was superseded by Roman Catholicism and the papacy. The papacy was superseded by Martin Luther and the Reformation. Martin Luther and the Reformation were superseded by the Enlightenment and liberal Protestantism. And now at last, Nazism or Bolshevism have superseded liberal Protestantism. I've heard this in virtually every community. There are versions of Pentecostalism that sees itself to supersede all that came before. Islam sees itself as superseding Christianity and Judaism. Baha'i supersedes Islam and everything else that came before. Marxism supersedes absolutely everything. So, yeah. (laughs) So the idea basically here for our, our specific topic here is the idea that when Christ came and the church was formed, anybody who didn't get on board that wagon was left in the dust and God is no longer part of their community, is no longer calling them, no longer in relationship to them. There's no longer anything special about Jews, ethnically or religiously. They they had their chance and they lost it. Yeah, they're zombies, right? Right. So the The reason. Right, right. So, of course, the reason why we're taking this up is both as Lutheran theologians, we are, you know, bearing also the responsibility for the evils of our reformer as well as benefiting from his gifts. So that's uh, a matter of conscience for us to address this issue. It also still remains a quite popular opinion that Luther is the somehow the origin point of the Holocaust, that it was him and what he said that led in a direct line to Germany 
Germany towards the death camps. So we need to address the question of that particular historical trajectory. So, but the way, reason I want to get there, Dad, through Romans 9 to 11 is because one thing I've learned from years and years of reading Luther now is how strictly biblical a thinker he is. Um, and I don't mean this in a fundamentalist way, but like truly his, all of his ideas, I often learn something from Luther before I find it in the Bible, because I probably <laughs> read Luther more diligently than the Bible a lot of my life. Um, but I'm often astounded to see, oh, that thing he said, it comes from here. All right, I got that now. So when I have looked at Luther's writings on the Jews from the early positive ones to the late horrible ones, which we'll detail soon, what I find to my great disturbance is that he is drawing his anti-Judaic language from the scripture. He is not making it up. Now, I think um, you'll tell us a little bit more about the whole context of Christian anti-Judaism through the centuries that probably made it easier for him to... um, uh, find these passages and zero in on them and exploit them. But it's not like he was just making it up out of his own, you know, bitter, twisted personality or something. He was being faithful as best he knew. So let me just read to you um, two verses from Romans 9. And this is the beginning of Paul's um, arc that happens through 9, 10, and 11. Uh, And it's important to get to 11, but let me just read you these two. So Romans 9, 6 For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So that is severing the ethnic and the religious relationship right there. And then in 9.8, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. So again, that severance. And it seems to me Luther must have, and many other Christians must have dug right in there and said, see, it no longer matters, like Paul says, whether you are circumcised, whether you are ethnically or by bloodline a Jew, what matters is whether or not you are in the right relationship to God. And that has to be through Jesus Christ. Therefore, if you are a Jew, not in right relationship to Jesus Christ, you are, you are not, it's not only that you are not right with God, you are not even Israel anymore. It's like stripping Israel status away from Israel and Jew status from the Jews because they are not in the right relationship to Christ. And that seems to me to be that that among other things must be the the wellspring of a lot of this supersessionism that we hear. Uh, you're right, of course. You're right that that this binary opposition, uh, the letter is Judaism, the spirit is Christianity. The law is Judaism, the freedom is Christianity, etc., etc. You can go through all, a whole bunch of different uh, slavery is Judaism, freedom is Christianity, etc. You can go through a whole sen- series of binaries along those lines. And this gets embedded in Christian discourse about Judaism to such an extent that Judaism becomes a figure or a trope, which has nothing to do at all with any kind of real conversation or dialogue or encounter with real living Jews, Jews in the flesh who might have something else to say about their faith and their relationship to God than, than, than is allowed in, in this binary, which then kind of produces this figure of the Jew or this figure of Judaism and the way it works in Christian self-understanding in the way that identity often works. I am this, not that. I, this oppositional thinking, I am this, not that. How do I know what I am? I say what I am not. Certainly, those binaries derive from the New Testament. There's no question about that. 
and so the habitual and unreflective use of these binaries through the long course of Christian tradition is something that Luther is born into and inherits without any conscious awareness of that this being a construction that he has inherited. Right. And it's self-evident every time he reads the scripture, like it's right there. Or like in John's gospel, talking about the Jews as if everyone else in the story is not also a Jew. Right. And see, that's what I was going to get at. The historical thing that we immediately have to point out is when Paul says things like this, these constructs these binaries, he is arguing as a Jew with other Jews in first century Judaism in which Christianity has not yet emerged as a distinct religion dominated by Gentiles. That's, that's just historically, this is an argument within Judaism. And just like I was saying, I think last time, that there is an antinomy that Agamben points out. There's an antinomy within Deuteronomy, within the law which is both an indicative of grace and an imperative, demanding the works of obedience. And uh, at length, uh, these, these binaries develop uh, internally as, as the tradition of Ju Israel's election uh, comes to grief upon the reality of, of disobedience and judgment, grace and renewal. And Paul would be in the long line of Jewish prophets, thinking that his, uh, bi his binaries are simply a new iteration of that long-standing uh, dialectic of judgment and renewal, uh, going all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. But it's specifically within Israel, within Judaism. Within Israel, within Israel yes. So it's within Israel that he says not all Israelites are true Israelites, you know, or circumcision of the flesh is not yet circumcision of the heart. You can read these things right in the book of Deuteronomy. Yeah, or in the prophets, right? Yeah, it's not alien to Israel's own scripture. Yeah. So the problem is that then we, much later, without realizing it, bring our Gentile perspectives to bear and just um, elide the categories without realizing that we're doing it necessarily. The cataclysm was the destruction of the temple. Uh, Paul died, Paul is martyred before the destruction of the temple in the year 70. And, and we know from the book of Acts that the early Christians worshipped in the temple. They were right at home in Jerusalem worshipping in the temple. And it's only when the temple is demolished by the Roman armies that the great divide into the Jewish and Christian religions comes about. Or it takes its its definitive form, because obviously there's a great deal of tension already existing there. Yeah. Right. But they, we know, for example, from the Gospel of John, that there was a point here after the destruction of the temple when Jewish Christians were expelled from the synagogue. And that didn't happen until the, the destruction of the temple required synagogue life, the life of the Jewish community in the synagogues, to consolidate. It couldn't tolerate that heterodoxy any longer. Right. And so there's this very brief period, probably not much more than 100 years, where um, 
let's say, uh, rabbinic Jews or Old Testament style, well, post-temple, but still Old Testament style, non-Jesus believing Jews are numerically greater and they're politically protected in the Roman Empire. And Christians have been expelled, they are vulnerable, and they are smaller, and they have no political protection. And it's not very long before the numbers shift, and there are way more Gentiles uh, to predominantly Gentile church. And then it's only a a short couple hundred years to um, political protection and then vast political dominance. But it seems that the church never recovered from its early memory of being you know, expelled from the synagogue or disbelieved. Um, And then this ongoing existence of Jesus' own people who refuse to believe in him seems to be a source of ongoing existential anxiety. And that just, it seems to metastasize through the history of the church, this this bad memory and this discomfort with disbelieving Jews. Well, sure. Living living Judaism, Jews of living faith, I I mean, in the midst of uh, Christian uh, cultures are really a, a cause of self-doubt. Uh, how, can, how can they continue to disbelieve? Doesn't that call into question our own faith? Well, I think the, the good answer is, yes, it does, and it should. It should, and it should, it should drive Christians to a deeper understanding of exactly what their faith is. And, and that, because they now understand the very good reasons Jews disbelieve the gospel of Christ crucified. In order to get to Luther's own specific relationship to the Jews, why don't you just give us kind of a portrait? Uh, I, I've sketched it very lightly, and but you know, give us a, a portrait of how Judaism functions, or the the figure of the Jew functions, so that we understand. Again, Luther is not making this stuff up; he's emerging as a very consistent product of his church culture. Yeah, I'm really happily dependent on a great work of scholarship. The title of the book is Anti-Judaism, the Western Tradition, and the author is David Nirenberg, uh, who is, I think, at the University of Chicago. Uh, And he demonstrates with this uh, impressive survey, it goes all the way back to ancient Egypt. It covers also Greco-Roman, pagan Greco-Roman anti-Judaism early Islamic anti-Judaism, and of course then the New Testament, the Church Fathers, the Western tradition, uh, up through, through through Luther and up into the 19th century and the Enlightenment. So this is a really incredible piece of uh, history writing and a very sophisticated analysis. And what he demonstrates, and I can't, I'm not going to give all the evidence because it would take, it's a 500-page book, I can't summarize it in in a nutshell, but to say that he does provide very careful readings of all the pertinent literature. And he shows again and again and again how the Jew becomes a figure by which an oppositional figure by which others define their own identity, what it means to be Muslim, what it means to be Egyptian pagan, what it means to be Greco-Roman pagan, and then predominantly what it means to be Christian. To be Christian means to be not Jewish, and that means not literalistic, not legalistic, not materialistic, not earthly-minded, not carnal, all these kinds of things that are then associated with the figure of the Jew. And this, this trope very much takes on a life of its own. He points out how infrequently 
the, well, let's focus on the Christian authors, how infrequently they tested it with any actual living Jews. I mean, can you imagine? I, I would say to a Jew, a Jew, now, is this how you think about yourself as carnal and legalistic? No. Materialistic, <laughs> you know? And, and I would be instructed that these are really misleading and injurious, uh, prejudicial value valuations being laid upon us, which, which then can take on a kind of an ideological power to blind us to what our own eyes or ears would be perceiving if we actually had an actual human relationship with the Jew. That, that's what David Nirenberg's book contributes, is this deep appreciation of the power and the danger of using Jews as a figure of speech. Just like we say, oh, you Pharisee, meaning a hypocrite. Right, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, just a casual language, right? We have to realize the toxic power of using these binaries this way when they replace the actual human encounter of Christian and Jew. Right. So that's that's what lies near at hand for Luther and his entire culture. So then to start off his story, what makes it so su surprising, startling, and extremely confusing is that Luther begins his career extremely positive towards Jews. In 1523, he published um, an essay called That Jesus Christ Was Born a Jew. He was accused of denying the virgin birth because he said that um, Jesus was a Jew. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and like, um, were you, did his opponents not pay attention to the fact that Mary herself was also a Jew? <laughs> but anyway, so um, a great deal of the of the text is um, arguing for the for the virgin birth, and um, but he is very insistent about Jesus being, you know, as we would say, ethnically Jewish. Uh, therefore, at the time, inevitably religiously Jewish as well and he's quite positive towards Jews and he in that in that essay actually says you know maybe we should lighten up on these guys and give them a chance and let them integrate and not force them into certain occupations and of course for Luther the the feeling is also that if they hear the gospel properly then they will come to believe in Jesus as they have not for low these many years but um, a 19th century Jewish scholar said that what Luther said about the Jews in that treatise were kindly words they had not heard in a millennium I mean it was that unusual and shocking for for Luther to say what he said. He got accused afterwards of being a Jew lover and that one of the problems with his uh, Reformation impulses is that they were too Jew friendly. So we have someone who's for the first time in like Western civilization, basically, since Constantine saying something pro-Jewish. It's astonishing. And that's what makes, of course, where he ends so baffling. It's almost impossible for us to conceive of the, the mental shift, the, the Janus face abrupt turnabout that he went through. So he continues to write you know, fairly Jew positive things um, through about 1526 in his various writings. Um, and then he's silent until basically 1539. So for a 13-year period in the middle of his career, he basically has nothing to say about the Jews at all. I mean, he, he's busy, you know, the, <laughs> the world is collapsing and the church has to be rebuilt and he has catechisms and family and the Augsburg Confession and all this stuff going on for him. Um, but it does seem that at least in the meanwhile, he was doing his homework. And this to me is perhaps the most tragic and painful part of the story, which is Luther was trying to learn everything 
he could about Judaism because, of course, he's a scholar of the scripture. So he learns Hebrew. He partners with other, um, you know, of his colleagues who are learning Hebrew, who are, um, you know, better at it than he is. They're working on the translation of the Old Testament. There are a few Jewish converts that he knows either personally or through writings um, there was this whole humanistic controversy over Jewish literature, and um, you know he was supportive of all that. But the stuff that he read about, let's call it rabbinic Judaism or the Judaism of his day, that was the best available material he had on what Jews were actually like. I mean, apart from like you said, this this typological role that they played generally in Christendom, and. So he was trying to be a responsible scholar and learn everything he could. The problem is that what he was reading is what we would now recognize as fake news, that they were salacious and horrible stories, some oddly enough written by converts from Judaism to Christianity. So who knows what their motivation was there? Uh, it's too deep for me to untangle. But so the sources he had were bad sources, but he accepted them as true. And maybe it was easy for him to accept them as true simply because he he already was living in this world of deep suspicion. Well, what finally starts to flip Luther into the more recognizable figure of the extreme Jew hater is that in 1539, rumor came that there was some congregation or churches in, I think, Bohemia that were reinstituting Saturday worship as the proper observance of the Sabbath. And Luther just kind of went ballistic. And he assumed that this was Jews infiltrating a Christian church to corrupt them back into the enslavement of keeping the entire Mosaic law. In fact, it was some spiritualist Christians who decided on their own steam to do it as, um, you know, like the, the Munster theocracy with its David-like ruler and polygamy and so forth. It definitely was not Jews doing this, but Luther simply assumed it was. He was clearly primed in his own thought world to think that it was their fault. So he writes this very bitter, uh, degrading, it's a horrible read, um, treatise called Against the Sabbatarians um, in 1539. And he basically says there, um, Judaism is a useless religion. It's lost its way. There's no reason for it to exist. Um, he actually has no conceptuality of what rabbinic Judaism can even be because he says, well, you don't have a temple, so you can't keep the laws. Therefore, you shouldn't exist. So for him, very much Judaism has to be sacrifices in the temple the way rabbinic Judaism developed um, you know, outside of the land of Israel. And then after the temple is just a non-starter for him entirely. And then finally, by the end of his life, um, he writes the, you know, the the really famous um, anti-Jewish writings. Um, and uh, there he says terrible things like take their books, burn down their synagogues, drive them out like wild dogs. Um, don't allow them even to pass through our lands. It is important to note he never advocated murder. Uh, exile, yes. <laughs> Arson, yes. But not actual murder. That, that was never the solution he had in mind. They simply were not allowed to be in Christian territories at all. Um, and this is often the, uh, what, what is the name of this last treatise, Dad? It's slipping my mind at the moment where he says um, On the Jews said, and their lives. On the Jews and their lives, right, yeah. This is the one that people will most frequently cite when, whether they are um, uh, in, in agreement with it. Tragically, there are still many anti-Semites uh, out there who use Luther as a proof text for their horrible designs, but also for those who want to dismiss all of Luther and anything he ever did or said because of, of this sort of thing. So that's where he ends. And I'm sad to say, even in his last extant letter that he wrote home to Katerina before he died, 
died, he talks about like catching a cold and says, you know, it must be all the Jews here or something. I mean, just really stupid. So, so beneath anybody, much less somebody like him. So that's that's kind of his trajectory. And again, it is such an about face that he is the first person to even explore the possibility of religious toleration, like since the Roman Empire. And then he ends out with this, you know, they can't even set foot in our lands. It's just such an extreme transition. Yeah, very good, sir. Thanks for a great summary of this uh, exceedingly disturbing and difficult to follow about face in Luther's career. And I think we have to simply express our moral condemnation of Luther in these last writings of his without any equivocation or qualification. Yes, I second that. You know, what we're about to do is try to make the judgment here, the moral judgment, precise uh, and rather than global or, or vague. Uh, it, we're not trying to exonerate Luther by contextualizing him. We're trying to make the criticism of his moral failure uh, precise by examining what it meant in its context. Good. All right. Well, why don't you lead us into that? Well, I think we have to begin with a few ideas here that you're, you're very much right, that Luther thought everything he did came from Scripture. And so he picked up these binaries that I was talking of earlier from Scripture. But here's an even deeper point. Luther made his living as a professor of Hebrew scriptures. That's what he did for a living. We would say today he was a professor of Old Testament. And so he mastered Hebrew in part in order to translate it into contemporary German. And he became a scholar of the Hebrew scriptures. So he was deeply immersed in the scriptures of Judaism and there he learned the prophetic self-criticism of Israel. He learned that from the very beginning, there was a true Israel and a false Israel within Israel. And this was the glory of the prophetic religion of Israel, that it would bring the judgment of God to bear upon itself. This is the prophetic glory of ancient Israel, that it did not regard its election as merely a privilege, but as a great yoke of responsibility. And therefore, that of all peoples on the earth, Israel was especially subject to the judgment of God. So Luther is immersed in this reasoning. You can call it Deuteronomic or prophetic. It doesn't make that much difference at this point. Moreover, Luther identifies the faith in the promise that begins with Abraham and which he traces all through the Old Testament narrative. He identifies this with the church, the church, the church of Christ. This is actually the church of Christ that believes in the promise of his coming. And so for Luther, Israel of old, Israel of the flesh, is not primarily the Israel under the judgment of the law, but the Israel of promise. And this is us. This is the church. For, for Luther, the literal sense of Old Testament scripture was Jesus Christ and his, uh, the good shepherd and his flock, the church, which is in every way prefigured in the stories of uh, ancient Israel. Yeah, so let me let me just intervene with some commentary there. So the issue for Luther is not 
with the Jews as an ethnic group. Again, this is a distinction that Christians make more easily than Jews themselves, but it's important to say that this is not an an anti-Semitic criticism of them, that the Jews, in fact, are distinguished by being those who are loved and chosen by God. And therefore, it also means Luther does not have an issue with the Old Testament. And that is a recurring form of anti-Judaism throughout the whole Christian church, and I would say very strong and popular still today. We can get into that later, or we ha- I guess we have in a previous episode. Um, but Luther is not anti-Old Testament or anti-Old Testament Israel. In fact, like you said, he sees a perfect line of continuity and identity between the people of God before the advent of Jesus Christ and those afterwards. So that is not where the problem lies. And I think it's important for us to see that because a lot of the, we more often now hear the criticism of either the ethnic group or Old Testament as a religion and all of the stuff that goes with it. But neither of those are Luther's problem. And like you said, he's very positive towards the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, uh, Along those along those lines, um, Luther uh, breaks with the previous tradition of exegesis in rejecting the allegorical interpretation, uh, or at least the excesses of it, and in place of that, arguing for figural interpretation. What's the difference? Allegory says that the literal words of Old Testament scripture are really a thick. Uh, cryptic code, and you have to penetrate through the literal meaning to discover its true spiritual sense, which might be quite something other than what the text literally says. Luther disagrees with that. He thinks the literal sense, what the letters say, is primary. And, of course, that when you try to read the Old Testament narratives literally, literarily, according to what the letters say, of course, you often have a lot of uh, questions and incompletions, and it's it's like it's you, you can almost get the plot line, but not quite. And so Luther says that's because we need a key. Search the you search the scriptures, for uh, uh, they speak of me. Jesus Christ for Luther is the key to the Old Testament scripture. He really is the literal meaning of the scriptures. The Psalms are Psalms are the, spoken in the voice of Christ. David anticipates Christ. And because the Christian interpreter has this key, he can both follow the literal course of the narrative and using his knowledge of Jesus Christ, bring it to completion in a way that the rabbis cannot. And that is for Luther the big difference. The rabbis don't have the key that makes sense out of the literal reading of the story. Right. Yeah. I, the, let me add to that. Um, the, the, the history and information about the fake news version of Judaism, I drew from this wonderful book called Luther's Jews, A Journey into Anti-Semitism uh, by Thomas Kaufman. Not the best subtitle. I, I would have preferred it to say anti-Judaism. But anyway, he, he gives the most thorough um, 
account I've ever read of Luther on this. And so one of the points he makes, and this directly connects to what you said, is that the Luther's love of an immersion in the Old Testament was truly a double-edged sword. Because on the positive side, what it did is reclaim in a fresh way for the Christian church that there is no Christ without the Old Testament. There is no scripture without the Old Testament. This is also God's story, God's people, God's gospel being expressed through these books preceding the advent of Jesus Christ. And that is, we would, of course, say theologically all to the good. However, here's the obverse, which is not so good, which is that meant for Luther. It was so clear, as you said, that Jesus Christ was the key for interpreting the Old Testament, that it became increasingly impossible for him to understand how the Jews could fail to see it. And so the more Luther claimed and appreciated the Old Testament, the more angry and resentful he got at the Jews for not sharing that insight with them. So for me, I have to say as a Christian theologian today who does love the Old Testament and is a strong advocate of Christians embracing it again, this is a very disturbing cautionary tale of the of the ugly flip side that can happen from that Christian embrace of the Old Testament. Yeah, and it's, I think this makes our criticism of Luther become more precise because it's exactly at this point, at the persistence of Jewish unbelief, that Luther panics and loses faith. He finds Jewish unbelief a threat to his own faith. And rather than pressing to, to a human and charitable understanding of Jewish disbelief in the same scriptures that he is treasuring, he simply demonizes them. You must be demonically blinded. That's why you cannot see the obvious truth. And that's, that, that act of demonization is a, a direct fruit of Luther's crisis of faith, his loss of confidence uh, in his own faith, which then he scapegoats, lashes out at the Jews as, as, as being this, this cause of his own doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Kaufman says that finally, when we get to this point in Luther, we have to see it as the bankruptcy of his own faith at that point, precisely. That instead of following his own best insights, he allowed, as you said, the panic and the doubt and the lack of confidence in God to win and failed. I mean, I, I don't know if this sounds like an excuse. It seems to me that if he had followed his own best judgments and his own remarkable, amazing, uplifting witness to the greatness of the gospel, he could have ridden that wave and come through it and allowed for the for the uh, complexity and the ambiguity of the situation to stand. But he personally failed massively and dangerously at that point. Yeah, I think I'd like to add one more thing here. Uh, Luther's knowledge of the rabbis was entirely mediated through Christian commentaries on Scripture. When he worked on his uh, on the Hebrew Bible, of course, he consulted previous Christian commentaries. And in these Christian commentaries, he found summaries of rabbinic commentary on the text. And uh, th- as we all know, now this is a point of just a historical fact, it's not a criticism of the rabbis, but it's a fact that the rabbis too agreed to disagree about the meaning of the text. And rabbinic debates about the meaning of the text rarely came to a consensus or settled anything. It was almost as if the debating about the various possible meanings of the text was the point, and coming to a conclusion was not the point. 
And this, this is what drove Luther mad when he, <laughs> and, and he said, you don't get the point because you don't have the key and you're wandering around and making up meanings. I think a lot of contemporary historical critical exegesis of the Bible is much like the rabbinic <laughs> approach that, that Luther was so exasperated with. You're so insisting upon the particular meaning of an isolated passage that you can never decide what it means in relationship to any other passage. And therefore you say, well, reader, it's up to you to make sense out of the hash I've made of the Bible. Right, right, right. It's called reader response criticism. <laughs> right. And I think what he would have perceived, and again, this is so inflected by his own experience within medieval Catholicism and his objections to certain aspects of it was, here is a group of people who perform rites they don't understand and argue endlessly without ever reaching the point of confession or understanding that any of this is for me and therefore transformative. And so the... the the failures he saw in the friary, for example, were very easy to project outward onto, onto the rabbinic Jews. Exactly. And one last thought about this before we move on. This resort to demonization, as I've pointed out in a number of places, at least we can say this about Luther, he was an equal opportunity demonizer. <laughs> true, he saw, true, true. He saw, he saw the devil behind the peasants' revolt particularly in the person of his renegade student, Thomas Munzer. And he saw him as a, as a, a diabolical preacher misleading the peasants into a hopeless war. Uh, and of course, he saw the papacy as the Antichrist. So the Jews, the peasants, and the Pope were all minions of the supernatural uh, evil one whom he, was, he thought he was battling in these vitriolic outbursts. Yeah, and the Turks eventually, too, with their false religion. Oh, right. Yeah, the Turks, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Luther had an immense capacity for hating many groups of people. It was not only the Jews. So the reason why, though, I mean, we're, we've been able to come a long way in improving our relationship with, with Roman Catholics and with Mennonite Anabaptists and, I suppose, to some extent with Muslims. So I think there's been less direct conversation, but also less direct impact there. But it is specifically because of the um, extremity of Western civilizations, anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism colliding with Nazi ideology resulting in the Holocaust or the Shoah that makes this so immensely acute for us. So let's just talk through, um, before we get on to final theological and spiritual questions here, what is the relationship of Luther to the Holocaust? How? What is a good way for listeners to think about it and respond to things that they hear said about it? Well, I think that's why I strongly recommend anyone who's serious about this to undertake the study of David Nuremberg's great book. Then you will realize that Luther is an episode in a much wider Christian uh, tradition of turning Jews into a figure for what is carnal, materialistic, literalistic, and legalistic. And that the power, this trope is something that needs to be understood in its uh, injurious power and repented of and put to, put to bed. Just give it a burial and don't use it that way any, anymore. I mean, that, so, so Luther is not exceptional. He's, unfortunately, he's all too traditionally Western Christian. Yeah. 
Yeah, when I when I was undertaking my study of this over the past number of years, I came to the terribly depressing conclusion that Luther is not unique. He's representative. Yeah. And for whatever reason, he's been lifted up as being somehow worse than others, you know, and I, I don't want to excuse him in any way, but to, to not excuse Luther means to bring the judgment to bear on, again, all of Western Christendom. Well, Eastern has a fair amount of guilt, too. You have to go uh, a little more knowledge of history. In the 15th century, all the Jews were expelled from Spain. Uh, and that's where the whole idea of the uh, blood, the genetic, uh, uh, you know, the pre, pre, pre-modern idea of blood, uh, Jewish blood, uh, was developed anticipating modern ideas of race and genetics and so forth, originated in Spain after the conversion of the Jews to Catholicism. So now how do you tell who's really a Spanish Catholic and who's a Jewish Catholic? Well, you have to start looking at race. That So that originates in Spain. England had expelled all of its Jews. France had expelled all of its Jews. And by the time Luther's writing... Most of the German Jews have been expelled, and they're all migrating to the east uh, into the Slavic countries and so forth. So, so when Luther calls for the expulsion of the Jews, he's simply picking up the, the political talk that's preceded him for several centuries. What do, what do you do with the Jews? Make them migrate. You know, they're, the wandering Jew is their eternal destiny. They have no home. He's an exemplar of that historical trajectory. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we've uh, we've argued a lot already for obviously religious and political toleration, and we want to reject all of that. But I would like to bring this back now, really, to the the theological and spiritual question for us as Christian believers and as theologians. So to circle back to Romans nine through eleven. So what's been happening all through Romans is Paul is arguing for the unrighteousness of both the Gentile and the Jew, and that the only righteousness is the gift of God through faith in Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen one. But then after going through this whole exploration leading up to the, you know, ecstatic joy and glory and longing of Romans 8, then we have Paul's problem in 9 through 11, which is that not all of the the Jews to whom the, the prophets and the oracles and promises were entrusted have come to believe in Jesus. And that's where we get those sentences I read to you at the beginning. So over the course of these three chapters, um, Paul explores with great poignant pain <laughs> what it is for him as a Jew to see that most of his fellows do not participate in this transformative faith that he has in Jesus Christ and what can this mean and the and the, the very deep question is is does that invalidate God's promise it, or has his promise failed to uh, be validated because the Jews don't believe and so the way Paul deals with it is by saying first that the unbelief of the Jews was actually God's sovereign action it was actually God deterring them from belief in order to bring in the Gentiles and Paul even optimistically believes that um, seeing the the engrafting of the Gentiles will cause the Jews to become jealous and want want the promise and blessings that they have. Um, And then at the end, um, Paul makes a strong argument, even though he seems to have dissociated like real Israel from false Israel, he comes to what we would see as a more inclusive total view of the inclusion of Israel. So let me just read a couple verses here from from, uh, Romans 11. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, 
For if the Jews' rejection means the re reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Um, and then a warning to Gentiles, don't be arrogant, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. That seems like a rebuke a lot of the Gentile church did not take to heart sufficiently. Um, and going on, um, he's talking to Gentiles. He, the, uh, Paul is talking to the Gentiles when he says, as regards the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. And so finally, the kind of culmination of all of this is in 1132, God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So it seems that the, the trajectory of this argument is that finally, whether it is Jewish or Gentile unbelief, Jewish or Gentile disobedience, everyone is in the same boat and everyone needs to be the object of God's saving mercy. And that is the final reality that will determine everything. Yeah, very nice, Sarah. Uh, let me uh, uh, add a few thoughts to that, okay? Um, the way I like to teach Romans 9 to 11 is to divide up the chapters roughly into three independent themes. Uh, chapter 9 establishes the sovereignty of God. Shall the clay uh, say to the potter, I have no need of thee? The, that's the fundamental thrust of chapter 9 is that God is the creator, and as creator, he is the Lord of the creation. And in principle, God has, therefore, the creator's right to do as he pleases with his creatures. As close as Paul ever gets to an abstract theological argument, how can you complain about God's justice or injustice when you don't know, the, you have not the comprehensive knowledge and scope that the creator has, what the creator is doing with his creatures? And God has the right to judge, and God's judgment, therefore, must be acknowledged to be in the right. So, you know, there's a that may, that's an argument that makes a lot of people very nervous because it sounds like might makes right, or it sounds like um, the Euthyphro problem from Plato's dialogue named Euthyphro, that it's right because God says it's right. But, but Paul does make this argument for divine sovereignty in chapter 9. Now, but that's not, that's just the beginning of the argument. It doesn't stop there. And I think the mistake that, for example, the great Calvin makes here is that he basically says that's the point, <laughs> that, you know, that, that that is the point, that God wills whatever God wills, and it is right simply to submit to it. But that's only the message of chapter 9. The message of chapter 10 uh, is far more specific. It's the story of Israel's um, particular guilt and its fall, right? It, it's God's dealing uh, with uh, the ignorance of Israel who sought a righteousness not according to knowledge. And that uh, pursuit of righteousness not according to knowledge, not according to God's righteousness, has led to its uh, hardening. Uh, has led to its hardening. So it's not like God hardens Israel's heart uh, a priori. It's that Israel, uh, for Paul, was already, uh, um, as going back to Romans 2, asserting a righteousness of its own. And by the time Paul speaks of the hardening of Israel's heart, it is not an innocent heart that God is 
is hardening. It is a guilty heart that God is hardening. Okay, so that basically I'm being very quick here getting through Romans chapter 9. But then uh, 10, 10, right? So then we get to 11. And this is where Paul says, you know, here we have a conundrum. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God loves Israel for the sake of the fathers. Uh, they remain his beloved. They are the object of his electing grace. And yet they have, they have hardened their hearts, and therefore the Lord has hardened their hearts to the gospel so that the gospel may go out to the Gentiles. Right? Now what? How is God going to bring this all together? And Paul here, I think you have to read very, very carefully. Because Paul says he had an apocalypse. He had, a, he had a revelation. He's not simply a theologian solving a problem in a clever way. But this problem that weighed on him so profoundly. Uh, uh, has God rejected his people? Meganoito. May it never be. No, absolutely not. What then, Lord? What then, Lord? Paul uh, is searching and praying, and he has an uh, a revelation, and that is the mystery that is revealed in the revelation that you spoke about earlier, um, that uh, if, if Israel's hardening has meant the inclusion of the Gentiles, what will Israel's acceptance mean but life from the dead, right? So that, that's getting on to it. And this is where I think so often uh, Christian theology has confused the theological issue of divine sovereignty and the human freedom of obedience with the philosophical problem of necessity and contingency. And, and then when you are thinking in terms of necessity and contingency, you utterly get the terms of this argument wrong. Romans opens with Paul's uh, bringing about the obedience of faith in all the nations, and Romans closes with Paul seeking to continue to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations. So here, divine sovereignty uh, has as its correlate the obedience of faith. It is faith that chooses the God who has chosen us. Faith chooses the God who has chosen us. Uh, that's the obedience of faith. Um, and that, uh, as you were saying, uh, bursts the bonds of this temporary uh, strategic hardening of Israel's heart. Uh, to make the ultimate revelation of the mystery, God consigned all to sin in order that he ha might have mercy upon all. That's the bombshell that drops in the revelation of the mystery uh, of God's plan and purpose that had hitherto been unknown. God consigned all to sin, both Jew and Gentile, in order to have mercy on all. Uh, and that's what Paul rhapsodizes about. Oh, the wisdom, the, uh, how unsearchable are his ways past finding out. It's not as certain Christian theological traditions uh, teaching double predestination have said, oh, the mystery, oh, the mystery, God 
elects some from eternity to damnation, and others he elects to salvation. Oh, who can figure God out? That's not what Paul's rhapsodizing about. He's rhapsodizing about the revelation to him, yes, all have been consigned to sin, but in order that mercy might might be shown to all. Right, right. Okay, well, that's hopeful. <laughs> I So for me, to conclude then, this raises two questions, which are probably not questions we can adequately answer in five minutes, but let's try. So the first is then, Luther, as we've said, could only see rabbinic Judaism as a pointless religion that has lost its way because it did not accept Christ as Messiah. Old Testament Judaism is fine. Rabbinic Judaism after the loss of land and temple is not. So how do we as and now I mean this not in a political sense, of course, toleration without any question, but in a theological and spiritual sense, how do we as Christians think about the rabbinic Judaism that has developed over time and that exists now? And tightly in tandem with that is the question of of uh, evangelizing the Jews or presenting them, engaging them with talk about the gospel. I know that in the latter case, it's precisely this idea that uh, the conversion of the Jews brings on the end times that has motivated some, I would say, more proselytizing than evangelizing missions to try to to bring them in in order to bring on the end. Um, but I'm just curious what you think about, about those two. But the first question is really the more serious one. I think. Well, I think that um, we have to take the theology of Romans 9 to 11 to heart in a way that earlier generations of Christians did not. I think that that the kind of what we have started here today. I think that we have to be critical of certain biblical passages like Matthew 23 or the blood guilt passage in Matthew's Passion or your father, you are of your father, the liar from the beginning, the demon passage in John 8, and so forth. Uh, but more profoundly, we have to penetrate to this, this kind of unconscious use of a trope that blackens uh, in our thinking Jews by this, stere- this stereotype and so forth. And in place of that, we have to humbly look for ways to actually have dialogue with uh, 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 Jewish people of faith. Um, one of the things we can do on the podcast sometime in the future, uh, I have I read in Jewish theology, so there's a number of contemporary Jewish theologians like Peter Oakes, uh, David Novak, uh, Zachary Braderman, and Michael, Michael uh, Visegrad that I think it would really be interesting for our audience to hear about uh, so that they can get a sense of why it is that for good scriptural reasons, Jews disbelieve the gospel proclamation of Christ crucified. And once we grasp that on a human level and say, ah, this is why a Jew faithful to the covenant has difficulty with the concept, with with the proclamation of a Christ crucified. Ah, and that teaches me as a Christian, oh my heavens, this is what I believe? Wow, that's a deeper insight into my own faith. So I I guess the the brief summary is then the conversation is still too premature for us to say with any kind of definitiveness, this is what rabbinic Judaism is, and this is therefore what we should think about it. But we are way too far at the beginning of a meaningful conversation to pass any judgment. Yeah, we can make historical judgments. I think that's quite fair. 
Uh, and that, that's evaluated not on confessional grounds, but on the evidence and the analysis. Um, and I think what you'll see is that a lot of these Jewish thinkers themselves are wrestling with the legacy of the rabbis. Uh, uh, that's something that I could bring out in discussing these theologians that I mentioned. All right. And then just a, the final question is, what do we think about sharing the gospel with Jews of whether they are devout or not at all? I, I, I think the same thing we think about sharing the gospel with anybody. You know, that, that uh, is one beggar telling another beggar where he's found bread. It, it, there's nothing triumphalistic about it. But, of course, you can't attack people with the gospel. And you can't threaten them with hellfire and brimstone. That's bad news. That's not good news. Yeah. I remember one time uh, somebody saying to me, like in a conference setting or something, like wanting me to say, like, we definitely should not evangelize the Jews. And I realized in the course of our exchange that the subtext was that all evangelization is basically being an aggressive jerk to somebody. And the yeah, Jews right. have been through enough already. So don't yeah, make them right. go through more. But my feeling was more, I think the issue there is your perception of mission itself as being somehow stealing people from their own people from their even from their religion and drawing them pulling them over onto my team is like well don't be a jerk to anybody you know whether they're a jew or not you know? and evangelism is not proselytism sharing the gospel witnessing to the gospel is uh, like that uh, statement i've found bread this is where i get fed that's what you know that's what it means as sharing the gospel if, if Jews are curious to hear the Christian gospel, then they should be invited to the church like anybody else. Yeah, right. I think what I've learned is that when you're evangelizing, you have to make the choice to be more vulnerable than the person you're talking to. If you've That's created good. a situation where they are more vulnerable, then you're definitely doing it wrong. Yeah, it's bullying. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, this was quite a, a tour through a very painful topic. And uh, next time, our topic will be the Sacrament of Holy Communion. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.